Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I felt... felt, felt I, feel right. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about black holes. And in true Story Collider fashion, we mean that both literally and figuratively. Sometimes you study regions of space with a gravitational field so intense that no light can escape, and sometimes you just feel like you're trapped in one. Our first story generously offers us both interpretations. That story is from Jesse Shanahan. It was recorded in September 2017 at Busboys and Poets 5th and K in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was control. So I think everybody here probably has one of those days that you'll remember for the rest of your life. This is the day that I will remember for the rest of my life. I remember it was the first Tuesday in September of my senior year of undergrad. Seemed like a normal morning. I woke up, the alarm ringing too early, as the alarm always rings too early, and I tried to sit up. And I couldn't. I tried to roll over. And I couldn't. Any attempt to make any sort of movement generated the most excruciating pain I've ever felt in my life. I'm talking my whole body ached in a way that, I mean, I've been injured a lot and I had never felt anything like this. And I was an athlete all through high school. I played three varsity sports. Um, In college, I played ice hockey and rugby, which terrified my mother. Um, I was used to having a certain amount of control over my body. Even when injured, I knew, okay, you know, sprain, four weeks, maybe three if I push it a break, I can wait a little longer. I knew what my body could do, and if it hurt, I knew why. But this time, I had no idea what was going on. And yes, I made it out of the bed, (laughs) eventually. And I made it to my doctor, who told me to take ibuprofen and go home. I then got a whole barrage of imaging scans, blood work, you name it, and was told, go take more ibuprofen. And I kept pushing and pushing and going to different doctors and different doctors, and I got told everything from uh, take more ibuprofen, which was getting really old at this point and also doing nothing, um, to, I remember, uh, the first super you know, professional spinal specialist I saw told me, your upper back looks great. So that's not the problem. My lower back's what hurts. And he says, well, everybody's lower back looks different, so take more ibuprofen seemed to be really like a theme of those months. And the hardest thing I think about it was that it never ended. 
every day I woke up, the pain was there. And every time I went to bed, the pain was there. And as time passed, it, it became my normal. Like, I, I remember having this conversation with a really close friend at the time. And I broke down and I said, I had this dream last night. And in my dream, I was in pain. And now all of my dreams, I'm in pain. And I said, I can't remember what it feels like to not be in pain anymore. Like, this has become my normal. And of course, I decided that the smart thing to do at the time would be to switch careers completely. So I left linguistics and I switched to astrophysics. Um, yes, that was quite the career switch. Uh, but I did land a really great research position studying the objects that I think I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure out. And those are supermassive black holes. And so, not to break the rule of no learning at Story Collider, but I'll tell you a little bit about them because I think they're amazing. They're some of the most energetic, luminous, exotic objects in our entire universe. And they exist at the center of pretty much every galaxy. And here's the thing about them, though, is that in astronomy, we have a very specific way of finding them. We look for a very characteristic signature. But of course, I can't like the easy way to do things. And so I like the galaxies and the black holes that are really dusty and really gassy and maybe just tilted ever so slightly the wrong way so you can't see that characteristic signature. Instead, what you have to do is you have to analyze every bit of data and come up with a portfolio, symptoms, if you will, of the black hole. And as my research progressed and I learned, learned more and more physics and math than I ever thought possible, my disease progressed as well. And I learned very quickly that the physical pain and the physical symptoms weren't the worst part. The worst part was the stigma and the reaction of people who looked at me and saw somebody that looked fine when I kept saying, I'm really not fine. It's like having a massive migraine and trying to tell somebody I have a headache, and they go, well, you look fine. You're fine. All the doctors saying you're fine. There's nothing wrong. Everything coming back normal. But you know deep down inside of you that really things aren't fine. And slowly, as I saw more and more specialists, basically for every new symptom that arose, they sent me to a different specialist. So I've seen uh, dermatologists. I've seen internal medicine doctors, immunologists, geneticists, neurologists. I mean, the list just goes on and on, and so does the medical bills. Um, but the interesting thing that started to happen was that some weird things did start to catch my doctor's notice. In one particular case, um, I had a spinal specialist want to do a procedure on me. Um, this procedure is considered non-invasive, but I beg to differ. <laughs> um, basically, it involves uh, a needle about this big um, that they insert into your spine about 30 to 40 times. Ideally, you're numbed the hell up and you don't feel anything and you're doped up and it's great. Here's the thing, my disease, I'm resistant to anesthetic and anesthesia. They didn't know that. So the first thing I got told was, as four nurses were holding me down and I was screaming, that you're hysterical and you need to stop, like little girl, you know, stop sobbing. Um, but he gave me more and more sedative. In fact, um, he told me after the fact that a standard dose is a quarter of a milligram. And he said, typically by a milligram, most people are asleep. He gave me eight. 
and my heart rate was 165. It just doesn't, he said it was like tranquilizing an elephant, and that became my nickname at that office, was the elephant. Um, but unfortunately, the doctor didn't go anywhere with this, but for me, I had another clue. And that's the thing, is that while I was learning this technique in my research of taking a mysterious object and instead of just observing it, extrapolating backwards from the clues I was given to some cause, ideally a black hole, um, but often not, I began to think differently about my health problem. And instead of continuing to just get bounced from specialist to specialist who each looked at a single symptom, I applied my own research technique to my body. And I looked for a single cause that could cause all of these different symptoms. And it wasn't easy. It took months, probably even over a year. And it took a lot of reading medical journals, which as an astronomer, why do you have so many medical journals? Like we have like five. And I was, I mean, there's like the American Journal of Genetics and like the Genetics Journal of America and the North American Journal of Genetics. And I'm sitting here like, I am so lost because we have like literally five. Um, but eventually, eventually I stumbled across an answer. And the reason why my doctors couldn't find it is that it was hiding in my DNA. It's a rare genetic mutation in my collagen protein. And collagen, yes, it's the stuff people inject in their face. And I can't tell you how many times when talking about this, I've been told, why don't you just get collagen injections? Doesn't work like that. Um, for me, the, the literal blueprint in my body's genes for collagen isn't right. So whenever my body manufactures collagen, it makes it wrong. Problem is, is collagen is in your connective tissue. And your connective tissue is everywhere. So it means if your connective tissue is broken, your everywhere is broken. Hence all of the symptoms and all of the pain. So this entire time that I was protesting to people, like, I'm really not fine, it's not normal to wake up with your shoulder dislocated. It's not normal to just wake up one day with rashes all over you. Like, th these things aren't normal, but doctors often don't connect all of those different pieces, especially if the problem is connective tissue, because you can't image it. You can't, it doesn't show up on an x-ray, and it doesn't show up on an MRI, and the only way to really get diagnosed is for a doctor to have that eureka moment and go, I think I know what this is, and no one ever did. So I did bring my portfolio of evidence, much like my portfolio of research, to my doctor, who referred me to an internal medicine doctor who made what's called a clinical diagnosis, which for genetic conditions means they don't do that gene test, they just kind of look at the symptoms and go, yeah, I think this fits. But after a two and a half year wait list to see the only geneticist in the United States who studies adults with my condition, I got my genetic confirmation in November. And, you know, this entire time that I had been dealing with this, if there's one thing I remember, it's how afraid I was. I went from being adventurous and maybe a little thrill-seeking and loving to take risks and putting my body in all kinds of harm's way just because it was a sport and it was fun. And I went from that to anxious and fearful of anything that could make me worse. I didn't go outside. I stopped doing pretty much everything because anything that would make it worse 
was something I didn't want. And although my condition is progressive and it's incurable and there's no treatment, having a diagnosis, I'm not afraid anymore. It gives me my control back. In a sense, it's, I'm not afraid because it's not unknown. I know what's going on. I know why something hurts. And this really, really puzzles me as a scientist because as scientists, pursuing the unknown is the basis of research. The things we don't know are what excite us and what inspire us. They're not what we should fear. But when it happens in my personal life, I was paralyzed by fear. But in my research, it's something that I chase after. And it's, it's very interesting to me because it's that pursuit of the unknown despite our fear that gives us technological progress. It gives us advancement of our species. But in my personal case, it saved my life. That was Jesse Shanahan. Jesse Shanahan is a science writer and astrophysicist, currently serving as a coordinating committee member in the working group on accessibility and disability that she co-founded for the American Astronomical Society. Her writing can be found in Science, Astronomy Magazine, and Forbes, among others. Outside of her research on supermassive black holes, she organizes STEM outreach in local schools, advocates on behalf of disabled scientists to facilitate accessibility and accommodations in STEM, and wrangles a very high-energy border collie named Hubble. Good dog, Hubble. If you're one of our listeners in the D.C. area, we will be back at Busboys and Poets 5th and K very soon on February 22nd. The theme is Off the Beaten Path. Check out storyclutter.org for more information. Now, before we move on to our second story today, I just want to warn you that it is an intense story about mental illness with allusions to suicide. But we're so grateful to Sarah for sharing this deeply personal story with us, and I think that you will appreciate it too. And on that note, our next story is from Sarah Pearl. It was recorded in October 2017 at the Ready Room in St. Louis, Missouri, as part of our partnership with St. Louis Public Radio. The theme that night was resilience. I was four years old the first time I mentioned that I wanted to die. Um, I told my mom that I would rather be dead because I wanted to be with my grandma in heaven. 11 years old, the first time that I fantasized about jumping out of my family's station wagon on the highway. 13 years old, when I had my first full-blown panic attack. The timeline of my life was marked by these moments of mental unwellness. I struggled with what I thought was the top-shelf genetic cocktail of my dad's depression and my mom's anxiety. Uh, By the age of 10, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and attention deficit disorder, and heavily medicated for each. And I hated it. The constant change in prescriptions, the side effects, the judgmental stares from the kids as I stood in line with all the crazy kids outside of the nurse's office to get our medicine, the tangible daily reminder in the form of a pill that I was not strong enough to handle life on my own. After years of forced treatment, I felt helpless and worthless. And so when I moved away from home for college, I quit taking all my prescriptions. I thought that I could experience life more fully without the blanket of medication weighing me down. 
I denounced any kind of treatment because everything I had tried before never worked. So at the age of 27, after several years of struggles, um, I decided that it was finally my time to go. Um, the, the, the voice uh, of suicidal ideation became just a daily thing for me, became so everyday and normal that I referred to it as my worst best friend. Um, after, after a decade without treatment, it became all I knew. Um, so I made a plan, and I called my mom to say goodbye, and I headed out to my final destination, a beautiful bluff that overlooked the Buffalo River in Arkansas. But as I peered over the edge, something inside me urged me to call the suicide prevention lifeline. That urge was my brain making its last attempt at survival. The volunteer Amanda uh, told me that my life was valuable, that I didn't need death, I just needed treatment. Uh, I didn't want anyone to know what was going on where I was living at the time, so she convinced me to come home to St. Louis to be near family, and she called me throughout the drive to talk me all the way home. My parents took me straight to the emergency room of a hospital that was recommended by our insurance company, only to find out when we got there that the psychiatric unit had uh, been closed the year before due to lack of funding. So I was held in a small room with only a stretcher for two very blurry days. I was heavily sedated, uh, both as a proactive measure because I still wanted to harm myself and also so that I could stop crying long enough to sleep. As soon as a bed opened up in another hospital, they transferred me by ambulance in the middle of the night. Um, when I got there, uh, they took me into a small room to sign paperwork that I couldn't even read through my heavy sedation and my constant tears. Unknowingly, I was signing away all of my freedom and every decision-making ability to a group of medically trained strangers. After that, they took me to my bed and I cried myself to sleep silently. When I woke up in the morning, I was looking at a bed next to me, um, empty because my roommate had already left for breakfast. Uh, the windows were thick and darkly tinted with one-way visibility so that I could look out on a grayscale version of the world, uh, but no one could look in and see me. I wandered down to the group room, and I still couldn't stop crying, uh, only this time there was nobody around to judge me for it. Uh, as we stood in line for our morning meds, it felt like grade school all over again, except there were no normal kids around to stare. Um, as the medication settled in over the next few days, I still cried, I still cried, and finally on the fourth day, I stopped crying. Uh, once I was fully medicated, my family came to visit for the first time, and I was so frustrated by how slow my thoughts and my speech felt when my sister gently told me uh, that I was actually speaking at a rate they could finally keep up with. <laughs> uh, I don't know what my normal pace was, apparently light speed. Um, <laughs> But, but that, that voice, that, that suicidal ideation, my worst best friend was gone, gone after years of daily abuse. <laughs> and uh, what was more terrifying was that I didn't know if or when it would come back. The next day over the phone, my mom suggested that I should be evaluated for bipolar disorder. Her therapist actually recommended it. Um, and I was, I was defensive I was confused. I was scared. It's like bipolar disorder. I don't, I don't black out and go into rages, and my mood's not up one second and down the next. And I knew that if it was on my chart that there's no way I'd be able to get it off. And if I had bipolar disorder, who would love me, date me, hire me, book me as a comedian? All right? 
surprisingly, plenty of people. <laughs> but uh, we didn't have any access to computers or devices. And so I asked the staff for information. I dove in head first. I've always been a curious person. And so when I'm faced with something that I'm afraid of or that I don't understand, I try to learn everything that I can about it. At this point, I didn't even know that there were different types of bipolar disorder. Uh, reading the criteria for diagnosis was like reading a really accurate horoscope. <laughs> I, I exhibited every single symptom of type 2 bipolar disorder. Uh, so they prescribed me a leading medication to treat bipolar and, oddly enough, seizures. Um, and I started to feel like a better version of myself, one that I hadn't seen in a decade. Uh, depression had stolen everything from me, including even my ability to read. Uh, but I would still brought along my anthology copy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, it was like a, like a security blanket with the words, don't panic, on the cover. <laughs> Lots of Hitchhiker's fans, great. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I, with medication, I was finally able to read again. And I will never forget being shocked by the sound of myself laughing out loud again at the guide. Uh, even though it's not science fact, I can say that science fiction made me cry tears of joy. So, uh, But all that paperwork that I signed, even though I was feeling better, that paperwork meant that I had no say over when I was able to leave. So I blundered through the next couple of weeks with a lot of trial and error. Um, I found out the hard way that the uncomfortable corner that the phone was in was for acoustic purposes uh, when I was complaining about the world's worst group therapy leader. <laughs> resulted in a lot of glares from the staff. Uh, <laughs> I learned that milk of magnesia is a magnesium supplement uh, or uh, suspension. Uh, best not taken after broccoli dinner, uh, unless you want to suffocate your roommate with stench. Uh, <laughs> I even made a, uh, a fake cigarette out of a, a bendy straw and a piece of rolled up napkin, and I thought I was the world's most brilliant inventor. Uh, only to find out that everybody up on the geriatric floor did the same thing. So, <laughs> but we spent a lot of our time coloring and doing puzzles and watching movies without ever once in two weeks being allowed to go outside. And the mindlessness of it made me feel like I was starting to make a backslide in sanity. Uh, so I started thinking about re-entering everyday life uh, when, when I was out. I'd only been doing stand-up comedy for about a year at this point, but it was the first thing I wanted to do as soon as I was released. Comedy's always been my primary lifelong coping skill. Whenever I'm sad or upset, I diffuse emotion with humor. And I found in that first year that I was happiest when I was on stage making people laugh. I started, as I started to feel better, I started joking around with everyone. I started writing down new ideas for material. Um, and I made plans for performing as soon as I got out. One night when my roommate and I couldn't sleep, I did a set for her, and she laughed so loudly we got in trouble. Uh, so I, you know, I, I really couldn't wait to do it. Comedy gave me a goal and a purpose and a reason for making it through the hard times so that we could laugh about them later. The time finally came for my release, and as I walked through the doors that my family had come through to visit so many times, I felt reborn. After two weeks of being stuck inside when the outdoors were really, really important to me, I expected to hear angels singing and see the clouds parting and to be overwhelmed by the senses of the outside world. Uh, what I saw instead was a rundown parking lot in Granite City 
And the only sense that was overwhelmed was from the smell of the city works facility nearby. <laughs> so, um, but I spent my first few days with family and friends and the daunting task of dealing with insurance companies, hospitals, making appointments and getting prescriptions. And I stopped by the hospital again before I headed home to get a note for work. And as I walked past the, the one-way window, uh, the one-way mirror windows of the group room, I couldn't see the women behind it, but I, I knew that they were looking out at me. And I wanted so badly to be able to signal to them in some way, to tell them to be strong, that, that they'll be okay, that if I can walk through this world with a newly diagnosed mental illness, they can too. One of the rewards for recovery is being able to pass through doors at your own will, something that I had completely taken for granted and never would again. Another reward for recovery was having access to information again. Uh, and so I dove right into the science behind my disorder. I found out uh, that it's really difficult to diagnose bipolar disorder in children because it typically pre presents itself as, as depression and ADD. Um, that likely my amygdala is atrophied from years of high cortisol levels and imbalanced serotonin. That the reason my medicine also is used to treat seizure patients is because the hippocampus is actually a source of both of our symptoms. Um, that the list of people that I share my diagnosis with is really long and includes heroes of mine like Maria Bamford. That research is always ongoing, which means that even on days where I feel completely alone somewhere, there's a research fellow I will never meet who cares about me. <laughs> And also that my disorder, type 2 bipolar disorder, um, has one of the highest rates of comorbidity with death, even higher than that of cancer, um, and that I'm lucky to have made it out alive. The first, time, the first time that my worst best friend came back was when I opened my hospital bill. Uh, <laughs> but instead of getting, giving it any merit, I, I saw it as a way to identify my triggers, I, I still catch myself noticing for rent and now hiring signs everywhere. But recovery means learning to trust myself again after years of unreliability. I uh, have a list of coping skills and relapse signs on the side of my fridge that I don't hide anymore when people come over because recovery means being able to ask loved ones for help. I have a hitchhiker's guide to the tattoo now with a banner across the top that says, not again, as a reminder that I never want to go back to that way of living. I perform stand-up comedy on a consistent basis because recovery means doing what lifts me up on my lowest days. I take medication, I go to therapy, and I map my mood daily uh, because recovery means that I am responsible for my well-being. And now that I have an accurate diagnosis, I can actually seek treatment that works. Mental health is nebulous, and though a lot of it is trial and error, recovery means I'm committed to my success. Thank you, guys. That was Sarah Pearl. Born and raised in St. Louis, Sarah is an up-and-coming comedian, musician, and storyteller. She's performed throughout the Midwest, most notably at Laugh Factory Chicago, Helium Comedy Club, and one time a back porch without a coat during winter. Her honest and sardonic style has been referred to as kind of sad, but really funny. You can follow her at Stand Up Sarah. 
For our listeners in the St. Louis area, we will be back at the Ready Room on March 7th. The theme is Best Laid Plans. Check out storycliter.org for more information. If you enjoyed today's stories or are a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast, and we really want to share these stories with as many people as we can. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Erin Barker, with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Shane Hanlon, Miriam Zaringhollum, Eli Chin, and Zach Stovall. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Busboys and Poets in the Ready Room for hosting these shows, and to all of our storytellers all around the country for sharing these precious parts of themselves with us. Thank you for listening. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big-